Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, she is one of the most glorious voices, impeccable comedic timing, and she's a certified wine expert. So talk about triple threat. Welcome Kate Rockwell to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is Kate Rockwell. Kate's Broadway credits include Mean Girls, Bring It On, Rock of Ages, Hair, and Legally Blonde. On TV and film, some of her credits include Almost Family, High Maintenance, Deadbeat, and Sex in the City, the movie. Her incredible solo album is called Back to My Roots, and you can get it wherever you download music. And she is also a certified wine specialist, so that's unique. Um, <laughs> I am so thrilled to have the magnificent talent that is Kate Rockwell on the podcast. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Alana. Thank you for having me. I am really excited. It's so um, it's so wild to have had someone in your ears singing nonstop and <laughs> helping me get through this pandemic and all the things. So thank you. And now to get to talk to you about how it is that you came to be in my AirPods uh, for all these many years. Um, Haunting your AirPods all yes, day, all night. Yes. Thank you for being in my head. Um, well, I want to start, maybe we can start uh, in in more present day and then we can go back. Um, when, I think it was around March 7th, I'm losing track of time now, when our governor in New York uh, thought it best to shut down big venues, like over 500 seats in order to protect lives of performers and audience members. Were you currently in Mean Girls at that time or had you already left the show? So I can tell you exactly what date it was. It was March 12th. I know that because I had just played my very last show of Mean Girls on March 8th. Wow. So that period of time is actually really burned into my memory. I, <laughs> um, I, yeah, we, I had my very last show with Mean Girls on that Sunday. Um, and then on that following Tuesday, which would have been the 10th, they did, the, the company did um, their first show with several new cast members, actually. Um, myself, uh, Barrett, Wilbert Weed left that day and Gray Henson left that day. So all three of us left on the same evening performance and Erica Henningsen had left about 10 days before that. Um, so four new cast members went into the company on that Tuesday, the 10th. They did a show on the 10th. They did two shows on the 11th. And then Broadway got shut down. So uh, I, I have those dates. Those dates are seared into my brain. <laughs> How insane that they rehearsed and did it twice. It's a little bit like gut-wrenching, particularly because um, – the, the woman who replaced me, it was her Broadway debut. 
the woman who replaced Barrett was her standby, so taking over the role full time. Right. Um, she's also exquisite. I did get the opportunity to see her go on wet when she was a standby. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the gentleman who replaced Gray, uh, he it wasn't his debut, but obviously he was doing the show for the first time. And then the woman who came in to replace Erica, Sabrina Carpenter. Um, and she was, so she's a very famous yes. pop singer, yeah. um, and TV actress. And, um, she was only going to be in the show for a limited period of time. So it was like, uh, just, it's so heartbreaking to know how much work goes into replacing in a Broadway show. And mm-hmm. I, I have replaced multiple times. So I, I am keenly aware of, of how much effort and time and energy goes into that to only get that payoff of doing the show three times before all of this is just insane. When you were sort of doing your last week, were you noticing that audiences were getting smaller? No, I, I honestly, we, we saw very little sort of change as it was uh, sort of the news was filtering in and, um, oh, sorry, that's my, my little dog shaking her little necklace. Oh, that's um, okay. It's live. Yes, both of my, and both my girls are here with me, so Good. we'll see if we can... We can settle them down a little bit so they don't make too much noise. Well, I just um, decided to change, like, swap chairs with my daughter because we're home. You know, everyone's home for school right now. And I'm noticing that the chair that I'm using for the first time is incredibly squeaky. So <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, we're just going to go. We're going to work with what we got. We're proving that it's live. Just making sure exactly. everyone's paying attention. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, no, we I really hadn't noticed anything in the show that was so different. Um, we had stopped doing guests backstage just to sort of minimal, you know, minimize how many people were coming into the theater. But that was very recent, like right, right, right at the end of that. Um, were you still signing autographs outside? We were, yes. They were, the plan was for them to stop that starting on Tuesday, the Tuesday before the shutdown. Right. Um, there was like a, we're, you know, starting this day, we're going to have this new policy where we're not going to do stage door line and we're not going to have guests backstage. And, um, but we hadn't really noticed a difference in terms of attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, and even backstage, you know, we were started starting to talk about things like, you know, having hand sanitizer backstage and how to co- sort of do our jobs if this was going to get serious because yeah. the shutdown, I mean, it just never even entered our brains. I don't think until very, until like that Tuesday we were like, uh Oh, and then by Thursday it was, it was happening. And I actually was on set on that Thursday, um, I was working on a television show for Amazon, a new show for Amazon. Um, and I was on set with my, my co-stars sort of following the news as it was coming. And, you know, we were in between takes, we would sit down and just check in. It was like, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And then sure enough, you know, all of the sports venues shut down and the concerts started getting canceled and then Broadway got canceled and then our production got put on hold and it just all happened so quickly. It was really, really overwhelming. (laughs) So you were on set and, and were you literally shut down on a working day or did they just say, Hey, we're going to shut down. Don't come back tomorrow. Um, it was not, we actually did finish our day that day. Um, or at least we finished our scene. I do Mm -hmm. believe they finished out the work day that day. Um, I do believe they went back to work that Friday. I was not called to set that day. Um, but then that was the end. That was the last day of filming. So they stopped. And what was the show? Um, it actually doesn't have a name yet. So we call Mm -hmm. it, um, we call it Untitled. And I I don't know how much about it I'm actually allowed to talk about because who knows, but, uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we will get to resume filming very soon. It is going to be, and it's going to be excellent. And how did you decide how long, I mean, from sort of first read of script to the day you left in March, how long had you been with that show? I, well, officially, um, I joined the company when we did the developmental lab, which was in the spring of 2017. So it was almost exactly three straight years. Um, but I was also a part of the very, very first table read back in 2015, sort of unofficially, not, not with any sort of plan of longevity, just to be there for the day. Um, and I did read the role of Karen. And so I guess technically I was a part of it back then, but really officially we started in in the spring of 2017. When you think back to that first reading, um, was the whole show written at that point? Oh no, (laughs) no, they had, they had a, a script for the first act. 
Okay. Um, we had ideas of songs that uh, Jeff Richmond, who's the composer, and Nell Benjamin, the lyricist, they sort of like performed little sections of songs that were ideas. Um, but there was only only one act script, and even that was almost unrecognizable by the time we saw it the next time. It had changed so much. But how did you know it was time to say goodbye? Because that's a really hard moment. It is. Um, it's a very hard moment. And I, I've only left one other show. Um, in I had the opportunity to leave. Obviously, you know, it's such a rarity to even be given the choice. Um, yeah, for to, to run long enough exactly. that you can go. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it was really mostly physical. I was dealing with a fair amount of pain. Um, some of it was from running around in stilettos for three hours, eight times mm-hmm. a week. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it was from, and, and this is my own fault, but Karen's sort of rigid body posture, um, that started to take a bit of a toll on me. And then, um, some of it was from the physical comedy, you know, falling over the furniture and falling up the stairs and tripping over. It was, it was, um, uh, I, I built myself a very physical track, which I love and I, I still would do again. Um, but after two years of it, every single day, sometimes twice a day, I, my body needed a little bit of a break. Did and you I think- find any tricks to sort of like, did you find anything that you could put in your shoes? Could they change the shoes? Could they change the flooring? Like, was there anything that could be done to sort of create a little buffer between you and the pain? You know, we tried a lot of things in terms of like what we could put in the shoes. And I was in a a lot of physical therapy and and a lot of other therapies as well. And at the end of the day, um, I I think that there's such a thing as as an injury of repetition. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that the reality was that without like drastic costume change, um, that was just not enough after two full years of of the Broadway run, not to mention, you know, the, the two previous versions of it that we had done in DC and in the lab before that. So I think right. that honestly, my body had just hit its limits and I'm, um, I'm not 17. I don't know if you know that about me. <laughs> I am, um, well, I am old- your little known fact. I know my, my little known fact is I am old enough to have a 17 year old. Right. Um, and I, I just think that I knew it was time. I knew my body had just had enough of, of that sort of repetition. And, um, when I did, talk to the creative team and, and say to them, you know, I think that it's time for me to go that it was like, I don't want to go. I love this job, but I have to be honest and say that like, I am, I have hit my physical limit of what I am able to do over and over and over and over. Um, every time I would, you know, fall or land harder or bump or, you know, anything, it all just, it would resonate through my bones. And I was like, okay, it's time. It's time to walk away. (laughs) I didn't think I was going to get this kind of a break though. This is a little more than I needed. You're like, I didn't mean that. We can wrap it up now. (laughs) The thing that is so remarkable and, and the great news about the internet, many things I don't like about it, but the great thing is that people who don't live in New York or places you've performed can see all or some of your performances on YouTube um, or your website or just different places where this unbelievable body of work lives. And the thing that is so extraordinary about you is this combination of uh, voice, acting ability, what you look like, and your ability to be like Lucille Ball, unbelievably funny. And I, and it's a rare thing for someone to have all the things in that way. And so I feel like some people, you know, the singing for many people, it's a natural gift. And then they learn how to hone it and care for it and grow it. Absolutely. But comedy it's so intuitive and I just feel like you can't really teach it. You can understand the science of it or the math of it, but you, you, Kate Rockwell, I, I don't understand how you understand how to do physical comedy with such incredible integrity at the same time. So can you talk to me about like, how did you discover how did you discover this thing that you have you know i don't i don't even know if it's because i don't know that i could pinpoint what it is i think it's just 
you're so right and that there is such a science to comedy and it's I I because I'm terrified of science I usually say it's a, there's a musicality to it mm-hmm. um, comedy is just like music there is a rhythm there is a, a lilt and a, a sort of like ebb and flow that goes with comedy I think that if you have an ear for it then you have an ear for it and you know, the rule of comedy in threes and the rule of too many hats on a hat. Those things are so important to remember as you're working. But I really, truly believe that, like, because somebody else can 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 throw those rules away entirely. I think about, like, Annalie Ashford, who mm-hmm. has the most unique and specialized voice, comic, comic voice that is, yeah. it goes against every rule ever. And she's absolutely brilliant. So even those rules and, and the, the sort of science of it can be thrown away if you just hear your own rhythm and for me my rhythm it lines up really well with with this sort of um less than brilliant female character you know the the archetype that that I've had the opportunity to play in a couple of different iterations now multiple times yeah it's it's been really interesting and it's um it just to me I don't know I just hear it it literally just makes sense to me and then then I've met versions of comedy even handed scripts or or jokes and and been like I don't understand I don't Mm -hmm. understand like what I just don't hear it it's like another language but there is a version of comedy that just is the language that I was born with I think because I I don't know that I could even identify it but I'm so grateful that people enjoy it I love making people laugh it is like my drug of choice um so I it it brings me so much joy that it brings other people joy but yeah I I I think I think I just got lucky (laughs) were you um were you watching like so where did you grow up first of all Uh, I grew up in Cincinnati Ohio and what were the who were the people the performers that really inspired you or cast albums that you fell in love with and how did this all find its way into you and you into it it's so funny because the things I'm going to say, none of them are funny. <laughs> um, it was very much cast albums. That was that really was how I fell in love with theater. I, I had the opportunity to see shows that toured through Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they were at the Aronoff Center, which was our, you know, touring house downtown. And my parents were huge theater fans. They they raised me on musicals and, and cast albums and original cast records, like the recordings on record. Right. Um, but all of the shows that we loved, I was such an Andrew Lloyd Webber fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up on Cats and Phantom and Pippin and um, Jesus Christ Superstar, weirdly. My, my mom really liked that one. Um, and then like I got into Rent when Rent was released. That was like I could sing you that entire show, all of the roles by myself um, so that's why it's like, I really want you to, okay. I know, that would be a very long podcast. Um, I, I got nothing but time, Kate. Russell, <laughs> maybe for another I, day. I think that the comedy came into my life because I, I think growing up in, and I did a theater in high school. Um, I didn't do a lot of like regional theater or children's theater, but I did theater in high school. And I think Somehow along the line, I realized that if I was funny, I would get more roles because mm-hmm. like every everybody wanted to be like the ingenue. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't care. I just want to work. And so I was always the like comedic relief or like I played Grandma Seidel in Fiddler when I was 14 mm-hmm. and I played um, Goldie with dot in uh, two by two, which is this very old Danny Kaye musical about Noah's Ark. But, and there's like a, let's call her a religious zealot, uh, who is like the comic relief. I played that role. I played Tiger Lily when we did Peter Pan. I like, I was always playing the, 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 the other, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that to me was just like a way of being in the show in a very competitive high school theater environment. And it just, it just stuck. I was willing to be goofy. I was willing to make a fool of myself. I didn't need to look beautiful and feel beautiful all the time. That wasn't the priority. I just wanted to play. And the truth is, like, comedy is, I think those of us who do comedy is because, like, a part of us absolutely flat out refuses to not be a child. And mm-hmm. that is for sure me. I refuse to grow up. Right, right. <laughs> and even back then, I didn't want to. I was like, no, I'll, I'll fall over myself and wear this ridiculous headdress. And so yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, it allows you to sort of, you know, you can hide behind it in a way also, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Fascinating about that because I think a lot about that and sort of it allows you to not have to deal with yourself seriously as a sexual being. You can kind of camp it up in some way. Yeah, it's a distraction. It's a distraction from acknowledging what's what's real or what's genuine or honest about you. And um, you know, they they say there's a there's a such a stereotype out there of the sad clown. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who are so excellent at comedy of which I can name several off the top of my head if I were right. interested in throwing people under the bus, but, um, you know, brilliant, brilliant comedians who, when they turn off their, their, it's very sad because that's, that's their escape. That's their therapy. Is being and sometimes to- they're really mean. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes they can be mean to you. Yeah, exactly. I try not to be one of those. I try not to be one of those comics. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um. Well, let's talk about finding Karen. Uh, was it sort of a culmination of other characters you had played before? Was it a little bit of the movie and a little bit of someone you knew? And a, like, how did you put those pieces together that created this almost like a head and a body that were moved in one piece but seemed completely separate from That's each other? That's exactly what I thought. Way? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But how did you body are disconnected? How did you do that? How did you where did that come from? You know, I think that I think it was a lot of things. Um I de- I mean, I have such a love of the film. I have such respect for Amanda Seyfried. So I would be lying if I said that wasn't a, a big part of how mm-hmm. my version of the character came to be because I mean, I knew that performance up, down, and sideways. Um, yes. But yeah. I also, I, I, I would also be lying if I said there weren't people in my life that definitely played uh, a, a part of of creating this character. Some some mm-hmm. real life people who's um, who have some some cameo moments in my performance with Karen. <laughs> um, I also think that there is something about. Tina Fey comedy in particular that is very that was very clear to me where it was like the the most important thing here is to not get in your own way and so so much of my of that character her stillness and her simplicity was truly coming out of the like you don't have to do anything it's perfect on paper just voice it like don't do more don't do less just voice what's on the page mm-hmm. and I think that that was I mean, some of that is just a tribute to her writing and how if you just get out of the way, it can you can be the perfect vehicle for it. But um, and and a lot of that comes just from the respect that I have for her as a comedy writer and and the work that she created. But I I also think that once we got sta- when you know once we got up and moving, so yeah. much of Karen is physical because there's a lack of physicality. And what you said is exactly right. I, I think to me you know, Karen has a body, but she doesn't really know what to do with it other than make it look good. Um, I don't think Karen has a whole lot of synapses firing all at once. I mm-hmm. think they fire slowly. Um, and the notion of like her head sort of being up and in the clouds at all times, which meant like her body was sort of just there, you know, like if you could like picture her as a doll sort of hanging from a thread at the back of her head. And the body just sort of hanging underneath her. That's really what I pictured. And then when we got wow. into costume work, I started, <laughs> I just said, I want shoes that I can't walk in. Like, give me the mm-hmm. shoes that, like, make me uncomfortable. Because I imagined what it would be like to be a 15-year-old girl in, you know, your mom's designer shoes that are, like, slightly too big, slightly too high. You don't really have the, the muscle to, to move around in them. And that's why, that's what I asked for originally is I was like, I need shoes that I make me uncomfortable and watch me try to walk around and look pretty in them. That's the, that's her. And so then once I had that understanding, we got to actually put shoes on me that I could walk in. Yes. Yes. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> but Although they still ended up to, they're still crippling in the end. Oh, they're horrible. They're horrible. I, so whoever invented the stiletto honestly needs to be caged, but uh, it's <laughs> It was yes. a cruel man Cloud. who invented the stiletto for a woman. Exactly. Um, like Claude Stiletto is a terrible man. I, I do. I have is. I have a lot of things that I'd like to say to Claude Stiletto. Um, <laughs> but but I, I did. I, I really just wanted to put myself into that position of what it would feel like to to be a drawing of yourself, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what Karen is. It's all about the the picture of of beauty, so to speak. If you know, if, if we could use sexiness or or whatever you want to use depending on the moment but 
Um, but then actually functioning in that takes a lot more. And I don't, I still think she has that. I don't think she has like the capacity to function in it. She just has the capacity to create it. And then she's stuck in it. Dreams <laughs> and, and, you know, you guys had so much publicity that you also had to do. So there's the show and then there was all the stuff surrounding the show. And thank you for acknowledging that. You are absolutely yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, exhausting. Exha- it's an exhausting musical. Not to watch. It's the happiest, liveliest, most delicious experience to be audience to. But the what you described physically, I think almost all the characters were really being asked to physically exhaust themselves for our entertainment. So yes, thank you. I think that's true. Um, and also because it was a movie and also because it was Tina Fey and also because there was just this desire for a whole new generation to get to have the experience of this show. And I think it was so beautifully reimagined, like holding on to all the original things that made it so beloved and then finding a way to reimagine it for this time, 2020 or uh, 2017, whenever it originally came. Um, But I wonder if my um, experience of you as a cast, which seemed incredibly supportive and, um, like a real team in terms of how you guys talked about each other and supported each other. Was that feeling that I had being audience to it very much what it was to be in it? Or was there, was it harder than it looked in that way to accommodate all those personalities? I actually think it was probably even better than it looked because the bonds that were formed in that group of people were from, I mean, from day one, I think. Um, were so incredibly strong. I, I mean, we I talked to that cat members of that company on a daily basis. Um, still, it's been seven months of sitting in my apartment, and like we're right. still talking all the time. That thread is going. Yeah, we um, we were so bonded and so supportive and so in love with each other. Um. And what I think you see on stage and and probably in the press as well, I would imagine is that the women were super, super close. Um, And that is, that is so the case. We were, we had our our second floor, which was the six principal women in the company um, were all on one floor of dressing rooms. And we called it the sorority because it was literally two girls in a room, three rooms. And we were, I mean, we functioned like a sorority. It was like clothes were flying everywhere. Everyone was in and out of each other's rooms. Everyone's grabbing snacks. Everybody's grabbing hair spray or whatever like it was that female bonding experience like they show you in movies that ever like women are like why don't I ever get that that was what it was um but what was even cooler is that that extended into the male and female ensemble in a way that the show doesn't show you because we were so separate from them on stage we were so bonded as a company a whole company um uh, you know, I, I have one of the women in the female ensemble now lives in my building and we were, I wrote her recommendation letters to get her in. And, um, uh, there was not, a, not none of, uh, intercompany dating. I will leave names out of that, but. Right. Um, well, Erica was, has, we, we've had some, we've had, we know about Kyle and we yes, know the big, the big ones I can say the names. That one I feel comfortable sharing. But there's more. <laughs> there's more is what you're saying. There's more. But we just, okay. we, we really truly bonded. Like I mean, the bonds were just so thick. And every time somebody would leave the company, it was like a like a death in the family. It was mm. devastating for people who were home, you know, but still staying home. I just said home because the August Wilson was my home for two right. years. Right. Um, and when we, the decision to leave the family was incredibly difficult as well because it was truly family walking into that building and I would check in you know with everybody every day just to to get there early and like make sure everybody was good or talk about what your date was like last night or you know how your parents are doing we we were so invested it was not a show up to your job and go home job it was incredibly connected and an incredibly supportive environment and that I don't I mean, I've had wonderful company experiences before, but nothing like what Mean Girls was. And I, I hope that I get to have it again. I, I really do. I know. We're, you know, it's so interesting because obviously these conversations are going to be out in the universe forever, right? These are yeah. these are podcasts and they don't get taken down <laughs> at a certain moment. And it's going to be really fascinating to see, you know, there are so many conversations about when will Broadway come back and 
and what will allow audiences to feel safe to gather in theaters again. But, you know, there's also what will make the performers feel safe. And how do you stay, you know, for someone who, I mean, I, I read like a thumbnail sketch of your resume for someone who has been working as an actress for a very long time now. I mean, you've had a tremendous amount of success and for all of us, our identity in, in this particular profession is very wrapped up in what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so how have you helped? How are you doing? How are you doing? (laughs) How are you? Change minute to minute, day to day. Like I'm really busy today. I have nothing tomorrow. Right. Like I understand how, how, tell me how that is for you. It's, it's been incredibly challenging and I won't lie. I, I have phases that go, sometimes it's day to day for me. It tends to be more week to week, Mm -hmm. um, where I have a really good week where either maybe just hormonally, I don't know. Um, or if I'm in the kitchen more cooking and that, cause that's been a very good creative outlet for me. Um, if I have the opportunity to connect with my friends, that's been, uh, you know, something that I, I cherish in a way that I always did, but not like I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have weeks where I, I, I had one, I had a day yesterday where I just went, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't know because I'm such a driven human being. I operate at, you know, extremely high octane all the time. Um, I I don't know how to sit quietly and watch a movie day in and day out. That just makes me want to peel my skin off. Um, and that's really what we are being asked to do. That is, that is, that's the goal now. So it has left me very sad and frustrated and, you know, to, to also be told by the Republican Senate that our needs are not important enough to them. And the only way we're going to get anything is if we give them the election results that they want is also incredibly frustrating mm-hmm. to be told that, you know, your entire city and your entire sector of, of, of the world or, or the entertainment industry doesn't matter. Um, that's hurtful. That's harmful to us who have worked as hard and as long as we have to get to where we are um, to watch momentum disappear is mm-hmm. incredibly challenging. Yeah. Um, because it is not an easy thing to to get to the place that, you know, the level of work that you have put in to get to where you're at, to have it sort of all disappear in a day is, is really challenging. So I, I won't lie. It's hard. It's it's very hard. And I am not someone who thinks that like singing into Zoom is the same. Right, <laughs> right, right. And my, my love of performing on a stage. Of course. In, we talked before we started recording about the opportunity that I had to go on Seth Rudetsky's show about a week ago. And I sang um, this song that I love from Songs for New World. And the whole time I was just panicking about how I'm in my apartment and my neighbors are mad because I'm singing really loud. And like, is it too loud? And can they hear the recording? And those are things that just make me so angry about like Zoom singing. Um, and it's just not the same as being able to sort of lose yourself in the performance of, of being on set or being on stage. Um, but it, you know, we, I think that for me, I just say yes to everything. Now I say, yes, I'm teaching a lot. I'm doing master classes on zoom. I did my, um, solo show. Actually, I had the opportunity to perform it at Birdland with no audience. Um, and they recorded it. They're going to release the footage on Broadway world here in, oh gosh, like a week. <laughs> it's on the 15th. Wow. Um, I, you know, how do so people that was, hear that? So how do people actually get the pleasure of watching that? Uh, you can buy tickets to the stream. I think tickets are only 20 bucks. Um, okay. And they're on, it's on Broadway World events. So you can, you can look on Broadway World and their events page and it'll be right there. Okay. Um, it's so, it was a crazy experience to record a solo cabaret, particularly a comedic one with no audience. So oh hopefully God. it's funny. We'll see. Nightmare. So was um, your band with you? Like, how did you? Did it you was re- just myself and my music director. Just okay. the two of us. Yep. Okay. Just to, so that we could, you know, stay. Really pared down. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and there were only, uh, in the room was just the camera operator and the sound mixer. And that was it. And they were very, very far away from me and they were wearing masks and, we wore masks. That's thrilling though. That's so cool. Yeah. It was an interesting, it was a very surreal experience. It was also my first time performing in six months. Wow. Um, and my solo show is not the easiest thing I've ever created for myself. So, uh, it was a challenge, but that's, but that was the thing. It was like, just say yes, just say yes. And, and the, one of the things I've learned maybe more than anything in this time is like, 
fear is just going to hold you back. So don't be afraid of it. You know, do whatever you need to do to, to actually be safe and then go because otherwise you're going to live in this, you know, die in this hole that you've created in your apartment <laughs> for the last six months. So I want to ask you, because I read it in your bio about you being um, just not just a wine lover, but truly a wine expert with even a like certificate or a diploma of sorts yes. that allows the world to understand that. Had you gone through a moment where you were just looking to use your brain in another way or were you thinking, I might want to have another career? What was the genesis of that whole moment in your life? I love that you actually use the word certification instead of calling me a sommelier. That makes me so happy um, because a sommelier is a person who runs the wine program in a restaurant, which of course I do not do and have never done. Right. Um, but I, I did, I, you know, it sort of happened by accident. I had just come out of doing a year and a half of Rock of Ages. And again, talk about a show that is incredibly physically demanding. Mm -hmm. um, that followed a year and change of doing bring it on, which was incredibly physically demanding. And so I got to a point where I was like, I, I am so tired and my body is so broken. Um, and the eight show a week schedule is, is incredibly grueling, very taxing. And, and so I just was like, I need a, I need a change. Like I have to do something else. And but when so you I, say that, did you mean something else forever or for a year? Like, did you even have a thought? Yeah. I don't think I was aware. I think I didn't have that long of a vision. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think it was pretty much day to day back then. Yeah. Um, but I, I met a, a friend of a friend at a party who ran this wine shop in the East Village. He had been an actor um, and had just decided the lifestyle wasn't for him and um, ended up in the wine world. And he offered me a part-time job at this wine shop down in 2nd and B, which is literally the farthest away you could get from my apartment in Washington Heights. Great. And <laughs> and uh, I I said yes because I was like I like drinking wine like yeah I'm, what am I doing right now Friday and Saturday nights that would be fun and different and I fell in love with it 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 mm. was such a passion of mine that I didn't know I had I mean I knew I liked wine I knew I drank wine I like knew a little bit about wine but not anything like that mm -hmm. and I started working two days a week there basically moving boxes and and working the register. Um, that quickly doubled to four days a week. And I started, you know, just really learning about the inventory, learning about why we had a particular niche in the, it's called natural wine, which basically means kind of low intervention, not a lot of chemical additives, not a lot of chemicals in the farms um, and in the vineyards that, you know, sort of more, I'm going to call it healthy wine, um, which, you know, put it in quotes if we were writing it down. Um, but uh, I, I really fell in love with all of that and, and the way that because it's not sort of a, a, a large mass produced product, every bottle is a little bit different. And it felt so much like live theater to me. Um, the wine world, oh, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. The wine world is just like the theater world in the sense that it's like all of like the nerds from high school, mm -hmm. like getting together over this thing that they're super passionate about. So like the community made a lot of sense to me. The, the sort of in the moment, only in this moment-ness of the product made a lot of sense to me. The artistry mm -hmm. in the bottle made a lot of sense to me. I mean, winemakers are, are artists. They create mm -hmm. art in, in the form of a bottle of wine. And it's incredible to see, you know, wine grown in the same place on the same hillside in the same year, picked on the same day, can taste totally different from bottle mm -hmm. to bottle based on what mm -hmm. they did in in the cellar. And I just fell in love with the art of it. So that's when I went, I, while I was working there, I decided to like actually get a formal education. And I went to the WSETs, which is the school that um, Wine and Spirits Education Trust, which is an international school that sort of unifies the way we look at wine and spirits so that it's not all over the place. And I got a degree through our certification through them. And then I went back and I did another program. Um, they call it their advanced program. It's not their most advanced, which is why I think that name is really tricky because there's way higher levels of certification mm -hmm, that I don't mm -hmm. have. But right. um, the second one I took was a six month program and, you know, a giant blind taste test at the end where you have to like pick out what wine you're drinking without knowing oh, what it is. My and, God. And you did. Um, and we, yeah, yeah, I did. And, and I used to be very good at that. Now I'm a little rusty. Musical theater doesn't lend itself well to drinking multiple bottles of wine a day. Um, but I, I have just found it to be now that it is no longer my profession and, and, and I'm working in the theater again, it is such a passion project of mine. And 
I'm, I'm actually, it's so funny. We're talking about this because I'm doing my very first ticketed wine event on, on the internet, uh, in October. So I will be doing teaching my first wine class actually. And, uh, and kind of teaching people how to taste wine, what to look for in wine, what kind of questions to ask. So you don't feel so overwhelmed with wine. Cause I know that it can be a very scary bubble to pop, so to speak, you know, if you're on the outside and you were looking in and you want to understand it, it can be, it can be intimidating. And I don't think it should be intimidating. I think it should, it's such a community. The wine community loves more people to be a part of the wine community. And I love bringing people into that community. So it's, um, this quarantine has given me an opportunity to develop this other skill that I, that I love very much. And, and I'm hopeful that people will want to share with me. Well, how amazing that this thing that was such a, like, a little journey that you had no idea. You didn't know there was going to be a pandemic. You didn't know that the thing you do was going to not exist for a while. And so that you have this other skill set that is actually practical because it doesn't involve having to be with other people always at the same time is incredible. Were you auditioning at the same time that you were doing all of that? And then did you get another Broadway show and that changed your track again? I did stop auditioning for a period of time while I was working there. I actually took on a full-time position with them for about six months. I was an assistant manager of this this amazing shop. Um, and and this I, was after Rock of Ages? This was after Rock of Ages. So we're talking 20... I was like working full-time for them in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, start, I just started to feel that little bit of an itch again. Um I was, when I started auditioning again, I probably stopped auditioning for maybe six to eight months. And when I started auditioning again, I was really specific. I was like, I only want to do, I want to do a play. I've never done a play before, just a, Mm -hmm. you know, straight play. Mm -hmm. And one of the first auditions that came to me was this new play. It was called Hollywood that we did out in La Jolla. And I and I bought it. I booked it. And so that was the thing that sort of led me out of the wine world was like, I just said, I always wanted to try this. I always wanted to know what it was to do a play. So I have to pursue this. And that was what sort of led me to that decision. So did you um, tell your agents, I'm taking a break? And did they stay your agents? They did. They were incredibly supportive. Um, Frankly, they were like, great, can you bring us a couple of bottles of wine? Uh, what do you think we would like? Can you, you know, whatever you want to buy. Um, no, they were very, very supportive. I think they were they were totally understanding. And, um, you know, the, when the auditions would come in and I would be like, I'm just, this isn't it. This isn't the project. They were like, we don't want you to do anything that you're not excited about. But if you had to put in a sentence, because so many people fantasize about doing something else or going, oh my God, I can't do this anymore, or the frustration of not getting jobs for a very long time, sort of demands that they get a second job. You were a very successful Broadway performer who could pay your rent. You weren't, you weren't, you know, catering most of the time. So what, why did you hit your wall in that way? Do you think? I think because I didn't have any perspective. And one of the things that is really important to me now that I've come back to the, to the performing world, Broadway world, is that we have to remember that what we do is choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think before I worked in the wine world, I think I felt about myself the way I know a lot of performers feel, which is what else would I do? What else am I good at? And there's limits in that, right? Like that makes you feel a little bit like it's this or nothing. And so mm-hmm. there's a desperation that comes with that. There's a resentment that can build with that. And I think I started to feel a little bit of that. And I was aware of it. I was like, I don't ever want to be this actor. I call it the golden handcuffs. Who's like, ugh, I have to go to my Broadway show. We know those people, right? Those right. people who have been yeah. doing it for so long, who've lost the perspective and therefore they've lost and the joy. joy. Right. <laughs> and I, I didn't want to be that person. And I, I felt mm-hmm. myself feeling that a little bit. And that was sort mm-hmm. of the decision to stop auditioning. It was like, got it. I would rather somebody just as talented or more talented who's excited to be there, get this job than me. I don't want to be that jerk who's like rolling my eyes in the back of the studio. Like I love performing. And if I can't do it every day because it, you know, it isn't bringing me what it needs to bring me, then fine. But maybe I just need to like feel what it feels like to be somebody else for a little while. Like Mm -hmm. let's go just step into somebody else's shoes. And the thing was, I found out I loved it. I was good at it. I was really passionate about it. And there's something about understanding that it is a choice to do what we do, to perform or anything that frees you from feeling like you have to. 
And I don't have to, I don't have to perform. I have, I have, and everybody out there, no one has to, you, everybody has other skills. Everybody has other passions, whether or not you've explored them. But for me, that was incredibly freeing and it has maintained, it still is freeing when I remember like, yeah, I could go do something else. I absolutely could. And yeah. and I probably would be okay at something yeah. else if I wanted yeah. to do that that way. But, um, but this is what I choose to do and I, and I love doing it. And that's why it's great to be there every day. I think that's why I was able to do Mean Girls as long as I did without ever being resentful of it because I just was like, I'm happy to be here. This is a fun way to spend my day and, and my time. And yeah, my feet hurt and my back hurts and my neck hurts and my <laughs> shoulders hurt. And sure. My, oh, everything, everything hurts. And I haven't like seen my family in nine months and I barely see my husband who lives in the same house as me, but like, I'm happy to be here. And so that's, that's all okay. But it also gave me the freedom to go, it's time to go when it was yeah, time to go. It's incredible. You know, I'm just curious because I can imagine you may have, do you have uh, like a funny audition story? Oh God. <laughs> well, I have so many, but I, the one that I, the one that is my most humiliating. Yes. Um, I fainted in an audition once. <laughs> I, I was singing, um, it was for American Psycho. Mm-hmm. Broadway run of American Psycho. Um, not to ruin the end of the story, but I didn't get it. And I was <laughs> little in, known fact. I was in uh, for the role that ultimately Helena York played. And I went in and I they had asked for a song of our own and I brought in uh, Alone by Heart, you know, 80s rock. Um, something that I love and had done before. And I guess but I you had, had or had not. I had I had performed this song before. I knew it. Okay. It was not but I guess I just didn't, it was a slightly early audition. It's like 1130 in the morning and I had eaten breakfast and everything, but maybe not much. I don't know. And I didn't feel the need, maybe because I was too comfortable to make sure that the accompanist knew the tempo. And I guess I just assumed everyone knows heart. They, they, they know this is like a driving rock ballad. Uh, well, they didn't. They definitely played it like a real ballad. And rather than stopping and saying, I'm so sorry, I'm, let's just try this again. Can we please take it at this tempo? Like the professional that I am, and I know to do, I thought to myself, it's fine. I'll just get through it. It's not a big yeah. deal because I know the song. And I I belted myself unconscious because the end is so crazy. And I was doing it so slowly that I ran out of oxygen and made it to the end of the song. And when they were like, okay, great. Can you get your sides? Let's do the scene. I was like, okay. I took one step and then it was like knees, elbows, face to the ground and out. I was out cold. <laughs> and what do you wake up to? So I, I came to very quickly. I like I wasn't like like I didn't lie there for a long time. You weren't in an ambulance. Like No, were- I wasn't. But what I came to, and here's a here's a little bit of a of not nice sentence is that whole room full of men just sat there and like <laughs> stared at me. No one got up, nobody came to help me until finally I think Craig Burns, who was casting it, was like, Oh my god, what is happening? And so he got up and like helped me up. And then we went on with the audition. I like sat in a chair and did, <laughs> you this, did this vibe. Yes. And I, the feedback to my agent, I called my agent. I was mortified. I was like, Jed, I can't of believe course. I passed out in this audition. The feedback that they gave my agent was she didn't understand the comedy. And my agent was like, you're going to call her back in and give her another chance because she fainted. Of course she wasn't funny. And so then I went, I did go back in. I had a final callback for it, which is hysterical. And, and then I, I did not, I did not get it. <laughs> and do you walk, like, do you lead with when you walk in? Like, do you remember what you said? Like, did you come up with something? I had, I had another audition at Telsey's office that afternoon and mm-hmm. that was also like a, a level of callback that a lot of people were in the room and I saw Bernie Telsey at that second audition that day and I went running to him just sweating like near tears I was like I am so embarrassed I'm so sorry I, I'm sure that was mortifying and he without missing a beat went eh, you're not the first and you're not the last and walked away from me like it was nothing and I was like okay yeah. I guess that's it. I guess I don't say anything. It was so like so not a big deal to him, and it was so mortifying to me. So I, oh. I don't, yeah, I just was like, I can't believe I just like hit the ground in the middle of that audition. Oh my god! Thank God you're okay, Kate Rockwell. Is all I can say. <laughs> yes. And I lived, um, I lived to tell the tale. You did. So before you go, is there a little known fact about you other than you can faint, get up, and still do the scene? Um, <laughs> but not well. But not well. I can't do. Not I can't well, do but it. good enough. You did it. Um. I, I think my little known fact, I've toyed with a couple of them as we've been talking, 
Um, but the one that I, that I think I'm going to share because it's going to hold me accountable, which is a good thing mm. is that I actually, as a singer, I trained for many years before I came to New York as a color tour soprano. And so like, think like, you know, like the magic flute style singing. Um, and I've never performed it. I, I, I've never been fortunate enough to be hired in a role other than once at the Carousel Dinner Theater where I did, uh, the Yeston Phantom to do any of my classical music. And one of the things I've been working on over quarantine is developing that part of my voice again. And I, I'm saying this on your podcast because it's going to make me do it, but I want to record this, um, this piece that I've been working on. I think I'm going to put it on Instagram and like release it to the world and make people listen to me sing like Handel because I've, I've been a huge part of my life for a long time and I never did anything with it. And I think it's time to just be brave and show people that that's something that I also used to do, or maybe I'm doing now. I guess we'll see what people think. <laughs> that is incredible. We can't wait. Kate Rockwell, we can't wait. Um, so everyone, we're going to, we're going to have that to look forward to. And you know what? <laughs> Whenever you do it is fine. That's all I want to say. It's out there and we're just going to wait patiently until it's the right time for you. So thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you for bringing so much art and beauty and kindness into the world. And Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Hey, okay. Before I sign off, I just want to tell you guys one more thing. I have a new podcast out. It's called And the Award Goes To, and you can find it on the Broadway Podcast Network or really anywhere you listen to podcasts. It is an incredible journey that I take with 10 Tony winners where together we listen to their speech that they made the night they won, and then they just take me through their entire Tony experience, how the role came into their lives, what the role meant to them, what the challenges were, how it felt to be nominated and more unbelievable, how it felt to win, and then what it is to wake up the next day after your lifelong dream has happened. Then what do you do? This 10-part limited series is something that started as a love letter to the Tonys when they were canceled this year and just turned into this whole other adventure. I'm so grateful to my guests, all of whom you love as much as I do. So check out and the award goes to, you're really going to enjoy it. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City.